So Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, tonight is the ceremony that we generally uh, would hold uh, either on, on New Year's Eve or New Year's Eve day, uh, but we're doing it today because it just worked out and I'm back in town. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about the meaning of that for us. Uh, so it's a very special day. The offering <clears throat> excuse me, will be different tonight, so that instead of offering incense, uh, you will go up to the bell, and you will ring the bell nine times. And so uh, I rang the bell outside nine times. Um, we did the bell, we always do, at the opening nine times, so that's 18. So we'll just have to complete 108. So whoever the math expert is here can do that in their head quick. If each of you do nine, we have uh, five of you. So five, five of you plus 18. So five times nine plus 18. And then we'll have to get to 108. So just tell me what that number is. <laughs> so tonight's reading <clears throat> is from T.S. Eliot from his collection called Little Gidding. For last year's words belong to last year's language, and next year's words await another voice, and to make an end is to make a beginning. So the, the first visit of a temple uh, in, in Japan for the New Year is called Hatsumone. And Hatsumone is very special, it's huge. In, in Japan. It's also big throughout uh, Asia. And it's the first time of the year that people will go and uh, make an observation or make an offering of some sort. And they ring the bells 108 times. So it's pretty, I have not, uh, last time I was in Japan, we left uh, before Christmas. And so I didn't get to see it, but I've heard it's pretty spectacular. But these temples that are, you know, some of them over a thousand years old, and everybody ringing the bells throughout the countryside. It's got to be pretty cool. And one of the practices that they do, uh, which we do here, and we also do at our home, is uh, the, uh, the kitamatsu or kitamas, which is a uh, an ornament that you would put on your door, and it usually combines uh, pine branches with a green or young bamboo stalk. And the meaning of that is the idea that the evergreen represents um, the, the eternal and the, the bamboo, the new bamboo re represents the temporal. So it's, it's, it's the joining or oneness of them together. So that as you begin your year, your orientation is correct. Even though it's a young bamboo, uh, it finds its, its, its center and refuge in the eternal. <clears throat> so I think it's a pretty cool, pretty cool symbol. So there's two practices that we observe besides these uh, decorations. And uh, they're both, again, based on the Japanese tradition. We are an American school, but we have our roots uh, mostly in the Japanese background. So that's why we observe a lot of their uh, practices. So the first practice, and I'm going to go into more detail about this, is called uh, Bonenkai. And that practice is about how you learn to put the old behind you. 
So the word itself means to let go or, you know, sort of just put the negativity and particularly the negativity because there are some good things this year. As rough as a year as this has been for a lot of us, it's also been a pretty great year for some of us as well. Some of us use this time to really dive deeper spiritually and have been rewarded greatly for that. So it, it's, it's always a mixture of, of negativity and positivity. But the practice is, uh, the first part of this practice is to, to let go of the negativity of the previous year. And that is combined with the practice of uh, Joya no Kane. And Joya no Kane is the ring of the 108 bells. Now, the reason we use 108, and they're all multiples of nine, is because uh, in classic Buddhist teaching, there were 108 klishas uh, or afflictions that a person could experience psychologically, physically and psychologically, um, that would create suffering. And so when we're ringing the 108 uh, bells as part of this observation, we are transforming those into blessings. So it's pretty nice, pretty nice. <clears throat> and it, the other idea of the bell is that it helps to purify negative karma and, and also open and refresh our minds. So this time of the year <clears throat> is where people make resolutions and, and they try to keep them. And usually those resolutions, I looked it up online, and most of those resolutions have to do with uh, the most popular ones, that at least that I found doing a few quick surveys, were loss of weight <laughs> or getting into better health. That was physical health. That was the real big one. Uh, for some people, it was uh, you know accomplishing some goal in the world of doing and having. You know that I want to do this. And I want to, you know, have this happen. And uh, most of them were, you know, related to the ones we always think about. People say, well, I'm going to give up this food, or I'm going to stop drinking, or I'm going to stop doing this. So there's also a lot of negativities attached to that because we're thinking about what we won't be doing as well as what we will be doing. And I myself have, over the past 20 years, undertaking the practice of each January to sort of do a, a retreat and reflect on all the things that I aspired to in the previous year and to see how that went, you know, because some of those aspirations came true and some of those aspirations did not. With the ones that did not come true, I asked myself the question, uh, why did that happen so that I can learn from it? And I really don't look at the things that failed or didn't work as, as you know, things that I have to dwell on negatively. I really do look at them and say, okay, well, why didn't it work? You know, and try to learn from it. The other thing I do when it comes to the things that I have accomplished, I ask myself, was it worth that? What was, what was it worth the work? Was it, was it the right intention? And so that I'm examining myself. And then after I've done that, then I will go about making, uh, usually I make 10. I will go about making 10 new aspirations for the new year. 
And uh, I would have to say, you know, it's really been a great practice, so I, I hardly recommend it. But most of the time, when, when people ask me about, you know, a mindful approach to the new year, and they ask about resolutions, while I, I understand and there's nothing wrong with, you know, you know, wanting to get in better shape or maybe lose some weight and those kind of things, that's really not the focus. And in fact, I would say that those things, while there's nothing wrong with them, to me are lesser. Let me explain what I mean by that. For me, when I, people ask me or come to me and say, hey, Sensei, what, you know, what should I work on or do? I always think that they should be spiritual practices. <laughs> that rather than being you know, mundane ones, again, nothing wrong with them. But at the top of my list are always practices that are spiritual practices. Because those are the things that for me, if those things are not right, then the rest of it doesn't really matter. So that's why that that's the, the way I look at things. So my suggestion is to use to try that this year. Rather than putting those, you know, mundane things a little high on the list, put them down a little bit. And, and maybe make your first few something that's more spiritual, something that's more about developing that sense of well-being. Because if you work on those, and those get better, the other ones will be easier. Because they're always linked. And that's the reason that most people fail. Now, on average, from these surveys that I did, um, there's something like 75 to 80% of the resolutions are never accomplished. <laughs> so they basically aren't doing them. Now, are they learning from them? If they are, then that's not really a, a real loss in my mind. But for the most part, people just try really hard to keep them. And then when they don't work out, their willpower gives up, they go. And that's because uh, they don't understand what is a very basic mindfulness teaching this. And that is that our will is limited. Why is it limited? Because that's not what's driving things. That's not the source of things. If you, you look at our practice, the four directions system of mindfulness, the first model we share is the model of how everything is interdependent and interconnected. And we have three primary practices that we enjoy or admonish. The practice of precepts, the practice of meditation, the practice of mindfulness. Now the practice of precepts is basically making the intention to be non-harming to yourself or others. And then once you are in a little better place, making the intention to help others. And what that does is it cuts down a little bit on any of the consequences from our actions that really weren't helpful to us. But if that's all we rely on, and we don't go back to the source of what was creating those feelings and actions and consequences, then our willpower seems to give in. At some point, it seems to give in. And for those who make Herculean efforts at just focusing on the precepts, they become the most annoying people in the world. 
because they're always talking about what they're not doing. And most of the time, even though they don't realize it, they've replaced one behavior for another. So that approach, it's okay to begin with, you know, because we've got to start somewhere. But if we don't go to the source and work on those things, that's why willpower seems to give out. If you're clear on this end, if your thoughts and beliefs are clear, then your feelings and your actions will also be clear. And so that's how you create effortless practice, and that's by going back to the source. Is that clear? So I'm going to talk about that uh, practice in three primary ways. We have uh, a saying called the Bodhisattva's way of life. And it's a, it's a blessing or a metta that we offer often. And that is, may you live fully, may you love freely, and may you give completely. So I always start with those three as my foundation. So let me talk a little bit about each of those. So what does it mean to live fully? <clears throat> my understanding of what that means is that we want to be free of delusional thoughts. That if we really want to live a free life and live fully, we have to work at getting rid of delusional thoughts. And it's interesting, um, when, this, when you look at this and study this a little more deeply, one of the things that you find is that uh, there's a teaching in uh, Buddhism that's uh, related to very old and ancient concepts, and it's called chi or ki. Very familiar with that, right? And, it's, and what is that? Well, a lot of people have a hard time explaining it, and people tend to sort of reify it into some sort of thing. In some ways, uh, George Lucas's concept of the force is very similar to what Buddhists mean by chi or ki. However, the easiest way to explain key is uh, an example I learned a long time ago, which is uh, if you want to teach people what, what chi or key is, just do like, you know, my wife has done many times in her, her classes with little children, is get a cup with some dirt, put a seed in it, and then put it in some light and give it water and watch as that seed turns into something that grows. Well, that growth is chi. That's key. That mysterious thing that no one, not even scientists today, can fully describe or understand. But it's there and it happens. So we think of it as the life force of the universe. But we think of it as an action, not a thing, if that helps. So part of what we want to do to live more fully is we want to unblock so that our, our life force can flow through us clearly and that there's nothing stopping it up. So in another way of thinking about this, this is how we stop the cycle of suffering. So that if we, we begin to look more closely at our beliefs and thoughts and to see if those beliefs and thoughts are based on reality and are helpful to us, 
If we start to see that they're not, then we have to go about the work of changing them. And that's what mindfulness really is. The heart of mindfulness is recognizing that everything is created by our thoughts. And so mindfulness is the examination of our thoughts to see if those thoughts are clear. Because if they are, then we know the emotions and the actions and the consequences that follow from them will be blessings. But if they're not, then that, that force, that life force, that chi or that ki cannot flow through us. It cannot manifest through us. Because negative thinking, delusional thoughts and beliefs block us. And that's why I said at the beginning that if you have all these resolutions but you have it unblocked, you're going to fail. Because your willpower eventually has its limits. It's true. Even the most strong, confident, powerful person under the right conditions will eventually lose their ability. So we must focus on freeing up or clearing out those negativities. And that's how you live fully. Once you begin the practice of doing that regularly, in other words, well, that's your daily and weekly practice, you just find that life is fuller. It happens on its own. That life force is free to blossom. Love freely. What does it mean to love freely? Well, I think it means a couple of things. Uh, the first one that I think that it means, it means you have to learn to care for the ego self. Now, in our practice, we distinguish a dynamic of the self, and we call it the ego self and the true self. Now, these are metaphors. The ego self represents our conditioned state. The true self represents our unconditioned. So we have both of these minds. Ultimately, they are one. But it's helpful, while we're beginning our practice, to look at them on their own. And the ego self generally is viewed by a lot of philosophies, a lot of religions, as the enemy. That you got to kill the ego. You got to somehow destroy the ego. And that the ego is the source of all your problems. And we don't look at it that way. For us, the ego self is just the conditioned me in this time and space. That's it. So this is just Tony. Tony started in February of 1963. Hopefully we'll go a while longer yet, but eventually Tony will not be. Not, not the way I am now. I'm not the way I was when I was 10. I'm not the way I was at 30. So I'm always changing. That aspect of myself is constantly changing and always contingent. And, and so that part of me is not the problem. And so what I want to learn to do, rather than see the ego self as my enemy, care for my ego self, to love my ego self. And, you know, unless you're a narcissist, <laughs> and even then it's not really true, 
even then it's not really true. Most people really don't really love their ego selves. They inflate them. That's what narcissists do. Narcissists inflate their sense of the ego self. But that's just another aspect of the ego self. But learning to care for it, to appreciate it, to become your own best friend in that sense, and most people don't pull that off. They don't do it. And part of the reason is because they don't understand it. They think that if they're, you know, puffing themselves up and they're doing that, that's inflation. So then that comes across as, you know, you know, arrogance and so forth. Or if they're, they're you know, holy, you know, they, they diminish themselves, you know, and they keep putting themselves down in some way. Oh, oh, no, not me. And so we want to find a middle way between inflation and degradation. And that way is to embrace ourselves with compassion and with wisdom. But we have to start with compassion. Because the fact is, if we don't have that for ourselves, whatever we're giving to other people, it's not, it's the key isn't flowing. It's just something we're doing out of obligation or a sense of duty or what, because other people will think if we do it, or to get something from someone. So it begins with caring for ourselves. So that's the first part of loving freely. The next part of loving freely, and this one is, is really important. And this one allows us to move beyond the boundaries of our conditional sense of self. And that is forgiveness. Now forgiveness is one of those things that it's really important to talk a lot and reason a lot with and really be clear. And I'm not, I don't have the time tonight to go into that. I could talk just about that for a week. <laughs> but I want to offer you something about this so that you might consider. First of all, from the Buddhist perspective, forgiveness is not something primarily we're doing for anyone else. In fact, one of my teachers, Bernie Glassman, used to say, I don't have the power to forgive you. I can't do that for someone else. And so when we talk about forgiveness, what we're first of all saying is that forgiveness is about learning to let go of something. And that's not popular today. Forgiveness is out. In our current contemporary culture, it's all about canceling people. It's all about putting people down. It's all about catching people with something. That's the problem with secular religion, which is what it is. There's, there's all the judgment and none of the forgiveness and none of the grace. And people bandy about words like justice. Well... The Buddhist approach is different. The Buddha says some hard words sometimes. He says, you know, there are people that say, you have wronged me, you have done this to me, you have done that to me. That as long as you hold on to that, you will never be free. And that you will never find that there is fairness in this world. Never. You live long enough, you realize. And there's no reward in revenge. 
it's fun to watch in a movie, right? I always say that, um, <clears throat> what's the actor that comes out with the feel-good movie of the year, I call Liam it? Neeson. Liam Neeson. <laughs> Liam Neeson always comes out with some revenge film that, you know, you're like, yeah, that feels good, man, right? <laughs> but do it yourself sometime. See what happens. One of the most interesting things I was ever a part of <clears throat> was a, uh, a movement at one time was called restorative. Uh, a restorative approach to dealing with crime. And I particularly did this when I was living in Boston and Cambridge and working for City Mission. And one of the things we found was is that most people that have had crimes committed against them, and this was really, this is what we found, this was really cool, they're not really interested in, in punishment. They want restoration. Now, some people do want punishment. They just want to see people nailed to the ground. No doubt. But a lot of people, I would say in my experience, the vast majority, were less interested in that than some sort of restoration. They wanted some kind of restoration. And when I worked with families that uh, had loved ones who were, you know, the most heinous thing, murder, for example, and I would ask them how they felt, you know, after the person was executed. And just, you know, that again, you did this in a way that was very uh, mindful and, and very uh, respectful. And some of them would have an immediate sense of, yes. But what was interesting to me was that the majority of them, at the end of the year, a year later, whatever they had gotten out of it was gone already. And now they were still feeling it. It didn't work. It didn't work. I knew a, a police officer whose father had been brutally murdered. And I went to see, and he, he didn't die right away, and I went to visit with them in the hospital, and then I spent some time with he and his family. And of course, you know, our image of a police officer today has been really, really, unfortunately diminished. And I, because I've had the pleasure of knowing a number of officers and, I, and this officer, I would love everyone who, who hates the police to have met someone like this officer. This, is a, this father that died was a police officer all his life. And he ended up being mugged and brutally murdered. His son was a police officer, had been a police officer for probably about 10 years. And of course, you know, even I went in thinking that this son, you know, is going to be like, what do you want? He was very saddened by his father's death. He certainly didn't want the person who did it to continue to do those things. But there was no hatred in his heart. He really taught me something that day. He knew. I asked him, I said, why? If you don't mind me asking. He says, I've seen it. I've seen it a hundred times. It doesn't satisfy. In the end, it doesn't satisfy. Stopping the person from doing more of it, sure. But it doesn't really satisfy. 
So forgiveness is something that we do for ourselves. It's a way of letting go of the negativity. So there's a practice you can try this year. Try to forgive someone that you feel has wronged you. Now you start with intention. I'm going to forgive you. You don't have to even tell the other person. I'm not a big fan of that. That's popular in some circles to make amends. But most of the time, you're just trying to make yourself feel better. Do it yourself. Change yourself. Forgive someone wrong. I mean, you know, start little. And then, you know, sort of reflect, contemplate. And then go to a big one. Something that really hurt you. And forgive it. Now, again, that doesn't mean you have to forget it. That doesn't mean you have to look, you can't learn from it. It doesn't mean you have to condone it. But it means let go of it. Don't let it keep you a prisoner. The other person that impressed me the most about that was Eva Moses Kaur. Her and her sister had been tortured by Mengele. And for, for decades after that experience, she carried that with her. And then one day, she had a realization. They made a film about her called Forgiving Dr. Mengele. She was about this big. She recently passed away. I was honored to be her escort. She never forgot what happened to her. In fact, she created CANDLES, which was it's an acronym for an organization to help educate people about the Holocaust and what happened. She never forgot. But she decided one day she realized, oh my God, I'm still in the concentration camp. I have never left. And she decided one day she was done. She was leaving the camp. And I remember talking to her son and him saying that the woman that he knows now and the mother he grew up with are two different people. The mother he grew up with was a somber woman who rarely left. The woman he knew now was playing music again and singing. The door to our cells are always locked from the inside, man. Not the outside. And finally, to give completely. And this is a practice that I know a lot of people are going to probably just hear and be like, oh, yeah. But this is a primary practice for me. If there are two practices, you want to be spiritual? You want to get your spiritual shit together? <laughs> do, do two things. Learn to forgive, and this one, to be grateful. Now, gratitude is not something that happens on its own, any more than forgiveness. Because the ego self, you know, it tries to defend itself. That's why you got to love it into... Let it go. Gratitude, my one teacher, Bernie Glassman, or not Bernie, I'm sorry, Alfred Bloom, he used to say that was his primary practice. He was a great Buddhist teacher. It was his primary practice. What does that mean? It means two things. It probably means more than this, but there's two basics. The first is that the reason we're not grateful is because we're always grasping. 
are always grasping. We are like the, the great song by Judas Priest, never satisfied. And then we're always grasping after something, you know. So a big part of practicing gratitude is to realize that grasping just creates more suffering. And that there's a big difference between ambition and aspiration. So if you notice back when I said about how I put down my stuff, I call them aspirations. The big difference. Ambition is always you're competing with somebody. You're always judging yourself against somebody else. Even when you say, you know, you're, you're doing it, you're, you're, you know, you're challenging yourself, you're doing it. I don't like that. Because when you say that, you do those things, all you're doing is you're grasping after some idea of you that's perfect. And so the difference between ambition and aspiration is pretty simple. Ambition is all about you feeling that you've got to keep doing things to somehow get to some sense of perfection, which will never happen. And life will take it away from you. The minute you think you got it, it'll take it away from you. I've known lots of people who are very successful in the eyes of the world. Very successful. And guess what? Even they suffer. That's what ambition is. Ambition is grasping. An aspiration, on the other hand, is different. An aspiration is the desire to express my true self, to live out of my true self, to give myself completely to life, not as a way to grasp and capture something that I can hold on to, some idolatry but a way of expressing my true nature. We call it our Buddha nature. You can call it whatever you want. Expressing your true self, that's when you're giving completely. And you know when you're on it. Because when you're doing it, suddenly things that you found difficult or you didn't like, suddenly it all seems to make sense. And that flow, remember I talked about before? You experience that flow. And you're in it. So I, I pray for everyone. My prayer and wish for everyone is that they have a good new year. And by that I mean that they learn to live fully, love freely, and give good.